afternoon. Gracious God, we feel our joy in our hearts this Sabbath day. The sun is warm. It's warming the ground. We have clean air to breathe. We have fresh water to drink. The colors of nature remind us of your beautiful creation. And like a young plant, we want to push through the cold winter soil, and share our joy with the world. May our joy spring forth so that those who are filled with sadness can have their sorrow lifted in some measure by our presence. We ask that your grace embrace us, move us from self-interest to compassion, from the need to be right to the place of doing right. Let your love that is at the foundation of creation spread out like roots, bringing life, healing, and wholeness to places that are cracked and broken. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who taught us how to pray using these words. Our Father, who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, the new year has arrived. And we have much to look forward to and much to be thankful for. Yes, we do have much to be thankful for. But if you were to ask me what I am most thankful for, my response would be that I am most thankful that God sent his son to planet Earth to live a perfect life, a life unlike any other life before him, or after him. His life was perfect in his father's eyes. His life was sinless. And he followed up on his sinless life by surrendering himself to the religious authorities 
to die on a T-shaped splintered piece of wood. And while he was dying, large amounts of blood dripped from his body like drops of love falling on a world of humanity that needed a new way to be in a relationship with him and his father. He covered our sin and our shame with forgiveness. That was grace unheard of at the time of Jesus, never matched again since that time. That kind of grace is dangerous. That kind of grace looks someone right in the eyes and says, forgiven. No conditions, no contract to sign. That kind of grace turns people's lives upside down. It's the kind of grace that allows a martyr to look into the face of an executioner with boldness and tell the executioner, you are forgiven. Grace is something that we can't earn. You can't earn God's favor. No one can. Every person, regardless of how many good deeds they have done, every person needs God's grace. Compared to Jesus, our good deeds are simply like filthy rags. It's not what we do. Rather, it's our faith that is counted as righteousness. The moment you trust in Jesus, his Father, Almighty God, sees you as a spiritual, well, as a real son or a real daughter. You just need to surrender. You need to surrender your sin, surrender your guilt, your shame. You need to surrender your life to Jesus, the Messiah, as your Lord and Master. Jesus took our shame, our sin, so that his Father could justify us. But God didn't just let us off the hook. God did something else. God put Jesus on the hook. God wants us to stop working for something that Jesus has already accomplished for us. If we trust in Jesus, then our faith is counted as righteousness. There are some really good stories in the Bible that teach us about this kind of grace, the kind of grace that Jesus showed us by example. One of my favorite stories about grace is found in John chapter 8. When the, relig when the religious leaders had caught a woman, they were about to kill her by stoning her to death. Why? Because she had committed the crime of adultery. The religious leaders were using the letter of the law as justification to execute her. In the story, Jesus was teaching a crowd, and the religious leaders brought the woman before the crowd and accused her. They were hoping that Jesus would say something against the law of Moses that they could use against him. But Jesus responded by saying that whoever was without sin should throw the first stone. 
And one by one, those accusers disappeared. The crowd must have been very silent, except for the stones that were dropping on the ground from the hands of the accusers. The one who had the right to stone her, Jesus, he was the only one there who was sinless, but he was the one who did not want to stone her. The grace that day was amazing. It was unheard of. After all, the law of Moses said that the woman should be stoned. She was guilty. You might wonder where was the man who also committed adultery with her. According to the law, he was supposed to be stoned too. Religion always seems to have a double standard. The woman endured immense public shame. She had been dragged into the public courtyard at the temple in front of everyone. She was totally vulnerable. I imagine that she was almost naked, covered by rags, maybe. She couldn't hide, and the voices of the religious leaders started spewing venomous hatred toward her. You're not worthy. You're guilty of a very bad sin. You deserve to die. That's what they told her. But then there was a voice of grace that spoke above the hatred. The voice of Jesus thundered over the religious condemnation. And with the authority of God Almighty, Jesus softly and tenderly said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus spoke the opposite of what religion spoke. The religion said, if you don't sin, only then you won't be condemned. Jesus reversed that. And he asked the woman. He said, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. Wow, this is a wonderful story. It tells us that no matter what your sin is, nothing is outside of grace. No sin is too big for God to forgive. Another amazing story about grace that I like comes from the Old Testament in the book of Hosea, chapters 1 through 4. It's a love story that should grab your attention because it's a story that involves pain, infidelity, betrayal, yet grace is found right in the middle of it all. It's a story about a prophet named Hosea, a devout and upright man. If he lived today, Hosea would be the guy who walks little old ladies across the street. He would be the guy who serves food at the local homeless shelter. 
He was living a good life when something shocking happened. God told Hosea to marry a local prostitute named Gomer. Do you think that God's prophet named Hosea had some confusion regarding this swirling around in his head? A prostitute? I deserve better than that, God. I've been good. Please, God, why do you want me to marry her? Nonetheless, he was God's prophet and he obeyed. He pursued her and he married her. He entered the covenant of marriage with a prostitute. You might think that she would want to leave her former life behind. But that's not what happened. For Gomer, unfaithfulness wasn't simply a former activity. Rather, it was a lifestyle. After they were married, she continued to run after other men. She continued to pursue prostitution. And it got so bad that she became enslaved and Hosea had to buy her back from the slave market. As he was paying for her release, what do you think was going through his mind? Did he feel shame? Was he embarrassed? Was he angry? Did he feel inadequate? Who knows? I can't imagine needing to buy my wife back from a slave market. Gomer was likely standing there on display, naked, men shouting out their bids as if she was just an animal, an animal to be added to the herd. Hosea was part of that crowd, and he was willing to pay the highest price, just hoping that his wife would willingly come home. What was he thinking? Did he question God's directions? God, haven't I done enough already? She betrayed me after I gave her everything. Maybe it was during this time of anguish when God quietly revealed his purpose. We can read what happened. Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to me, Go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship them. So I bought her back for 15 pieces of silver and five bushels of barley and a measure of wine. You know what? God didn't tell Hosea to marry Gomer just to make his life miserable. He told Hosea to marry Gomer, hoping that the nation of Israel would see the object lesson. See what it was like for God to pursue people. God pursues his people, but his people are often like spiritual prostitutes. 
We offer ourselves on the altar of false gods like money, power, reputation, drugs, and so many more. Yet God continues to pursue us. He continues courting us. Our God, our creator God, is a God of pursuit. He is a God of covenant. He is a God of unfailing love and grace. Hosea's story, on the surface, doesn't seem like a very nice story. But it's a story that illustrates God's nature toward his people in a powerful way. When God makes a promise to his people, he keeps it. He doesn't leave us, and he is relentless in his pursuit of us. His love for us is not soft and fuzzy. His love for us is strong, and it's loyal, and it's a jealous love. One very interesting point of this story is that like Hosea, God doesn't force us to accept him. And in the same way, Hosea brought Gomer, he bought Gomer, and then brought her back home, fully restored, despite the messy, soiled life she had fallen into. And in that same way, God, through Jesus, restores us. In Jesus, we have an anchor. We have been redeemed. God's love is so potent that when his love pierces our hearts, we can't help but have a transformed heart in return. Sadly, many religious people view God as a harsh God, waiting to sentence them for their sins. Quite the contrary. God is like a loving husband who compels us with his love, not with fear. Fear doesn't motivate someone to love. It never happens. Rather, love from someone else is the real motivator. Only love can produce willing obedience that lasts. Indeed, grace is a one-way type of love that just flows. Grace is love that flows directly from God's heart into our hearts. All right, Pastor Michael, <laughs> what about the argument that says grace will result in a bunch of hypocrites who simply take advantage of all the grace? Everyone will just use grace as an excuse to live immorally. What good is grace if it breeds even more sin? Isn't that what will happen if everyone just uses the excuse, I can just be forgiven? Well, theoretically, a person could take advantage of grace because grace is vulnerable. But the amazing thing about grace is that in its vulnerability, people are completely transformed by its power, and then they never want to take advantage of the grace. They never want to abuse it. 
There is nothing sweeter than giving up yourself for the one who sets you free. The truth is that the people who see God as their judge are the ones who try to take advantage of grace. Their relationship to God is a judicial relationship. It's not an intimate father-son or father-daughter relationship. If they only understood the great gift they have been given, then they could not help but give themselves back to God. When you truly find grace, you never have the desire to take advantage of the grace that has set you free. When you've experienced the joy and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit within you, you know that Jesus is the only name that will satisfy your soul. And the way of life you lived before Jesus no longer has any attraction to you. Grace like that can't be controlled. It can't be tamed. It changes you. All you need do is to allow grace to do its work. You've got to give yourself over to Jesus. Because grace like that will change you. Early in his ministry, Jesus and his disciples were on their way to Galilee from Judea. They passed through Samaria. They stopped for a rest at Jacob's well. At the well, Jesus had quite the conversation with a Samaritan woman. One of the topics of discussion concerned the proper place of worship. One of the topics, or one of the religions said, Jerusalem is the place to worship. The other religion said, there's a nearby mountain. That's where we worship. Jesus listened to this Samaritan woman say her opinion about the difference in the worship locations. And then Jesus told her in John chapter 4, verse 23, but the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now. When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. The Jews and the Samaritans argued about the right place to worship. But Jesus said everything was going to change. Worship would no longer be an external behavior with certain places set aside for worship. Holiness would become a matter of worshiping in spirit and in truth. One of the ingredients of our worship, according to Jesus, is truth. And the truth is that God, who created the universe, which includes us, cares about all aspects of life. He cares about science. He cares about food. He cares about art, music, politics, Languages. God cares about the way you do your job. He cares about his entire creation. God cares about you in a personal way. And he calls us to do more than just talk about religious things. Jesus made it very clear 
that he came to build a kingdom. One of the implications then of building a kingdom is that we as followers of Jesus are not supposed to be isolated from society. We are called to be God's ambassadors, to speak in his name, to lead the charge to reclaim and restore what God has created. The way we live our lives matters. The truth is that music belongs to God. Art belongs to God. Science and mathematics and engineering belong to God. Everything that can possibly be imagined belongs to God. It all comes from Him. So if you are going to sing or play, you should sing and play to the best of your ability. Be the best that you can be. Because God created music. He created the wood we use to make the stringed instruments. God created the silicon we use to etch the transistors on for our soundboards that were used to mix the signals from our instruments into a collage of beautiful sounds that is so pleasing to our ears. Our ears, by the way, were created and sculpted by God. As the year 2023 has rushed upon us, let us renew our commitment to God to live lives of excellence in all that we do. God is the author of life, and we need to be relevant, not by copying the world around us. Rather, we should become relevant by inserting our worldview as followers of Jesus into everything that we do. And the place to begin is by seeking excellence in all that we do. But even more than that, God wants you to live in a manner that reflects the mind of Jesus. When your lifestyle reflects Jesus, then you are also reflecting the mind of God Almighty. And may this be your resolution for 2023. May you live in a manner that reflects the mind of Jesus. And I'll close with that. Amen. Hallelujah. Yeah.
I will give my life to 